Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. The recent violent clashes between Indian and Chinese soldiers along the line of actual control, the first since 1975, have led to a serious escalation of tensions between the two countries. Transgressions across the boundary occur periodically and are typically settled through established military and diplomatic protocols. However, the recent clashes have highlighted the utter inadequacy of these measures with the potential to alter sino-indian relations in the years to come how has the boundary dispute especially the lack of clarity on the lac impacted the relationship between new delhi and beijing over the past 3 decades why do some incidents result in standoffs while other do not what does the current situation portend for the future of sino-indian ties to discuss these questions and more We have with us today Ambassador Sham Saran. Ambassador Saran is a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. He was a career diplomat and has formerly served as India's Foreign Secretary, as Prime Minister's Special Envoy for Climate Change, and as the Chairman of the National Security Advisory Board. Apart from stints in China, he has also held ambassadorial positions in Indonesia, Nepal, Myanmar, among other places. Ambassador Saran is the author of the book How India Sees the World Otilia to the 21st Century. Ambassador Saran, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you Shrinath. I want to begin by asking you for your view of the current situation along the line of actual control. Uh there seems to be a bit of lack of clarity on what exactly is the situation because on the one hand statements from the government suggest that there is no chinese incursion onto the side of lac that india considers as its side but uh, there is a lot of newspaper reporting there is satellite imagery and of course we've had this clash in which uh, 20 indian soldiers and an officer have uh, died so i was just wondering if you could begin by giving us your assessment of the situation as it prevails on the lac at this point of time uh, thank you uh, shinath um you know we are faced with a situation where the flow of information leaves much to be uh, desired uh, i think uh, you know when uh, the government itself uh, does not uh, fully brief the public about what the current situation is then naturally there will be a speculation and uh, i would not uh, place too much in uh, os stored by the satellite imagery or uh, some of the very elaborate analyses that we have seen because frankly speaking authentic information as to what is happening on the ground uh, is not really very clear so uh, i think uh, we have to be a little careful in the manner in which we make these kind of assessments having said that it is very clear that uh, at kalwan a very serious incident uh, took place uh, in which 20 of our soldiers lost their lives uh, perhaps uh, a, a indeterminate number also uh, were lost on the chinese uh, side uh, 
Uh, and it is also uh, very clear that uh, this uh, involved a difference of opinion in terms of you know, the presence of the two sides uh, on the line of actual control. Uh, so that much uh, appears to be fairly clear. We also know that uh, previous to this, there had been incidents at the Pankung So area where clearly there has been a Chinese transgression on our side of the line of actual control. You know, the so-called uh, finger four to finger eight area, which we used to patrol, but those patrols have been hampered uh, by a, a strong Chinese uh, presence. Uh, there is also no doubt that there has been a buildup of forces both on the Chinese side as well as on the Indian side. So these are, uh, you know, facts which are available uh, to us. Uh, now, in making the assessment, we have to take into account uh, the fact that this is not a isolated incident. That, uh, as I said, there have been also incidents at the Pankungso area. Uh, previous to that, uh, there was an uh, incident on the uh, Sikkim-Tibet uh, border. Uh, these have happened within a certain short period of time. Uh, so it is not as if these are, you know, isolated uh, instances on the border uh, because this may be local activism. Uh, the fact that there has been a buildup of troops uh, on the Chinese side also could not have happened with uh, fairly high level, you know, uh, approval. Uh, so this is a new situation. That much is very uh, clear. The level of violence is also new. Uh, we have not seen this level of violence uh, in the past. Uh, and the buildup of forces uh, on the Chinese side is also a departure from the past. So we are facing a new situation. If you have to think about what prompted the Chinese to make these particular sets of coordinated moves at this point of time, and also to escalate the situation, particularly the clash on the Galwan side. What would you think are the two or three most important drivers? Uh, you know, you have observed China over so many decades. Uh, and throughout this period, as you have pointed out, you know, there's hardly been any incident which has gotten out of hand in quite this way. Why do you think the Chinese have decided to change course at this point in time? It is not perhaps uh, reasonable to, uh, you know, cite only one particular factor, because I think uh, there are several uh, factors which have uh, gone into why you know the Chinese have chosen to act at this time in such a manner as escalatory manner as you pointed uh, out. Uh, so let me begin by pointing out. So I do not think that we can point to just one factor uh, as explanation for Chinese behavior. I imagine that there were a, a multiplicity of factors which sort of came to a head uh, about the same time. So let me uh, begin by pointing out uh, the proximate cause. And the proximate cause appears to be uh, that uh, the infrastructure development which has been carried out uh, in the eastern Ladakh uh, area, in particular the uh, Demchok uh, DBO road, uh, this has obviously had the effect of uh, changing the balance in the area somewhat in India's favor, although I would say that uh, the asymmetry between 
Indian capabilities and Chinese capabilities is still quite significant. But yes, the Chinese have been objecting to uh, the border infrastructure development on our side. And perhaps this was seen as giving us a tactical advantage, which then they tried to neutralize. That is uh, one aspect. The second aspect, and here I am, uh, you know, uh, referring back to a lot of the literature we see in the on the Chinese side, particularly from some of the South Asian uh, think tanks, that uh, there was also uh, unhappiness about the change in the status of the erstwhile state of uh, Jammu and Kashmir, the creation of uh, Ladakh as a union territory, and uh, in the course of that change. Uh, you know, certain statements made by uh, the Home Minister relating to the recovery of uh, not only Kilimanjaro, Baltistan on the Pakistani side, but Aksai Chin on the Chinese side. Now, uh, even though this was explained to the Chinese side that there was no uh, change in terms of India's relationship with the uh, with China, uh, perhaps there has been some suspicion about or a, a heightened mistrust. Uh, as a result uh, of this. Uh, so this has also been cited as a, a, as one of the reasons. Uh, and I think uh, the um, other aspect is uh, the broader aspect. And I think the broader aspect is that, uh, you know, uh, I have pointed out that China uh, thinks very hierarchically in terms of power uh, equations. And uh, it certainly believes that... Uh, you know, there should be, in terms of, say, an Asian order, there should be a hierarchical order with China as the dominant power. Uh, so if we are talking about an Asian century, which uh, Tang Xiaoping in 1988 said that, you know, the Asian century cannot be possible without both the emergence of India and China and even a certain partnership between them. I think the Xi Jinping... Uh, view is very clear that uh, an Asian century can only be one which is led by uh, China. And therefore, any pretensions on the part of India to uh, aspire to some kind of a equal you know, status and role uh, must be you know, put down. And uh, the Indians must be taught where their place is. And this is also a refrain which you see uh, coming out in some of the writings uh, on the Chinese uh, side. Uh, so there is that overall geopolitical uh, aspect uh, of uh, the uh, seeing an opportunity, especially with the kind of disarray in which the rest of the world is, uh, that uh, this is an opportune time to get countries with the uh, pandemic. Uh, so there is a certain certain opportunity that should be taken advantage of. Uh, so there is, a, there is a, I think, a whole matrix of uh, reasons why uh, this has happened and this has happened at this particular point of time. Uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the point on infrastructure. Now, the lack of parity and the strides that China had made, especially in the early 2000s, in terms of border infrastructure development, uh, this was something that you had pointed out when you were still in office as foreign secretary in the mid 2000s. And uh, subsequently, about uh, eight, nine years later, when you were chairman of the National Security Advisory Board, 
it was again uh, something that you had uh, underlined as an area that we, which is to say India, has to get its act together in a much more coherent and cohesive fashion. Uh, how do you think this particular activity from our side, has it really picked up? Uh, I was recently reading an article by a former chief of the research and analysis wing who pointed out that under the Modi government, uh, you know, construction of infrastructure, etc., has taken uh, a kind of a turn which it simply did not have in the past. Uh, but I was just wondering, uh, do you think that this serious point of concern as far as the Chinese are concerned has been A, and B, whether that really is a serious point of concern as far as the Chinese are concerned? Uh, let me uh, point out that, uh, you know, I was asked to undertake uh, border infrastructure surveys uh, by the then uh, UPA government and specifically by Dr. Manmohan Singh, uh, the prime minister himself. So the first um, uh, infrastructure survey I carried out was in 2004. Then I repeated the survey in 2007. And then, as you said, as chairman of the National Security Advisory Board, uh, I did uh, another survey in 2013. Uh, and I covered virtually the entire stretch of India's borders with Pakistan, with uh, China. Uh, and also, I had done some earlier work on Nepal as well as on uh, Myanmar. Uh, now, in that context, I would uh, like to point out that uh, Certainly, in the early stages, there was very significant asymmetry uh, in terms of you know border infrastructure between the Chinese side and the Indian side. No doubt uh, about that. Uh, and uh, several uh, you know proposals were made by me uh, for uh, improving the infrastructure on our side, and a considerable amount of work was uh, even carried out uh, during the UPA years. And I have no doubt that. Uh, these projects have been continued and perhaps even, uh, you know, accelerated under the uh, present government. Uh, so I don't think it is a matter of, you know, uh, the previous government did not do anything and it's only the, the uh, government now which is doing this. Uh, I think uh, there has been a commitment to improving border infrastructure now uh, for a considerable period of uh, time and very significant improvements have been made. Many of the plans which are being carried out today are actually plans which have been on the, uh, on the anvil uh, for quite some time. Uh, so there is no doubt that there has been, across the board, there has been a lot of improvement in uh, border infrastructure. And I would add that even though the improvements have been made, there is still quite a distance to go. It's not as if we have overcome that uh, asymmetry. Uh, now, to what extent uh, this uh, has uh, been a matter of concern to the Chinese? Of course, the Chinese have been expressing their concern, um, you know, repeatedly about the development of border infrastructure on uh, our side. Uh, at a certain point, I think they had even suggested that we should come to an agreement to freeze any kind of border infrastructure development on either side of the LSE. And we had very rightly rejected that because <laughs> that would mean freezing the asymmetry in favor of uh, China. So having been in a very dominating position in the past, uh, to have that dominance, dominance in a sense eroded over a period of time, uh, I'm certain that uh, on the Chinese side, there would have been uh, concern about this. And uh, as I said right in the beginning, that the proximate cause of what may have happened in Galwal 
of course has been uh, the development of uh, the uh, you know uh, the highway uh, links in the area very importantly the revival of the advanced landing grounds uh, at uh, dbo at uh, chushul at uh, phukche at demchok itself uh, these have improved our supply situation and of course the chinese would find it uh, a matter of concern so one of the things the chinese have been doing in the current situation is to exploit the ambiguities around where exactly the line of actual control runs because so far the chinese uh, even though they have at various points of time going back all the way to 1956 suggested that they have various conceptions of where their claim lines in this area lie they have never been absolutely clear in terms of indicating cartographically where exactly their line of actual control as perceived by them actually runs and it is that ambiguity which allows them to consistently push things forward and over a fairly long period of time india has especially in the 1990s and then in the 2000s attempted to see if the chinese might be willing to clarify the line of actual control not to settle the boundary but clarification of the lac itself but the chinese seem to shy away from it all the time why do you think they are so reluctant to embark on such an exercise the short answer is that uh, the ambiguity <laughs> helps them to uh, carry out the kind of um, you know transgressions that uh, they have uh, in the recent past and also in the during earlier uh, such uh, confrontations um, so let me uh, point out that um, one where does the lsc lie what is the alignment of the lsc whether it the eastern or the middle or the western sector we should be very clear that we are fully aware of where the lsc lies uh, so there is no ambiguity about the alignment of the lsc as far as the indian side is concerned i am saying this because inadvertently perhaps sometimes an impression is given that uh, you know uh, there are differences of perception on the line of uh, actual control and it seems that there is some ambiguity about its uh, alignment even on our side no there is no ambiguity on our side uh, ambiguity arises because at various points uh, the chinese side uh, raises uh, doubts about where the uh, lsc is but we have no uh, doubts about where our lsc lies so this should be uh, clearly understood Uh, and also uh, in the in the same manner it is not correct to talk in terms of buffer zones or talk in terms of you know uh, zones which are um, uh, you know no man's land uh, we, they, they, these are completely uh, you know uh, terms which are certainly not appropriate in the current context now uh, please uh, recall that in uh, 1996 when we concluded the uh, peace and tranquility agreement with uh, china uh, the chinese and the indian sides committed themselves to an exercise for the clarification of the line of actual control because both sides recognized that without a clarification of the line of control and identification of areas where there may be divergences of opinion with regard to where the line lies uh, it would be difficult to maintain peace and tranquility and this 1996 commitment uh, has been again uh, reiterated in 2005 when we signed the very important uh, political parameters and guiding principles for uh, the 
settlement of the India-China border question. Uh, so it is not that Indian side has pressed China uh, to agree to clarification. And this has been a demand on the part of China, which China has resisted. Here, what we have is a case of China refusing to, in fact, deliver on the commitment that it has made. Uh, that it would sit together with uh, the Indian side and clarify the uh, LSE. And why are they not uh, agreeing to that exercise? Uh, I think it is precisely because uh, it gives them a certain advantage in terms of, you know, raising these kind of, um, you know, issues uh, at various points of the LSE, arguing that, you know, according to their perception, uh, this is where uh, the line of control lies. And I think from Marble's side, there should be uh, a, a, a continuing pressure on China uh, to deliver on this uh, commitment. We should not let uh, go of this uh, of this uh, requirement because it works to our disadvantage. And of course, we have this process uh, where the special representatives of the two countries meet periodically to talk about the boundaries. And again, that process in the mid to end 2000s actually did make much more progress than it has ever since. Uh, but do you think China has, especially over the last decade, become much more reluctant to talk about the boundary itself as a whole, not just the LAC? That is the impression I have, because uh, uh, in a certain sense, you know, 2005 was the high point. Uh, because if you look at the political parameters and guiding principles, uh, it actually incorporated uh, principles which earlier the Chinese side was uh, resisting. For example, that, uh, you know, uh, well-defined geographical features should be taken into account when, um, you know, trying to settle the border issue or that the interests of settled populations should be taken into account. And these were very important for us because, you know, in terms of the, uh, you know, watershed principle, in terms of, you know, the interests of the settled population in Tabang, uh, it was important that these principles should be accepted. And they were accepted in the uh, political parameters and guiding principles. And as I mentioned to you, even in 2005, there was a reiteration of the commitment uh, to clarify the line of actual control. Uh, so the uh, why has that uh, you know, changed? Well, I have argued that uh, you know, uh, 2005 fell during a phase where even though there was a power asymmetry between India and China, but India was growing at a very rapid rate while the Chinese economy was slowing down. If you recall, we were growing at the rate of something like 8 to 9% per annum. Uh, in many ways, uh, the international perception at that time was the, in that India is going to be the next uh, China in terms of economic and commercial opportunity. Uh, that was the time when the you know, term like the BRICS uh, you know, came up. And uh, India and China were even seen as uh, the two emerging uh, economies which were able to work together on issues like, say, multilateral trade regime, uh, climate change. You know, I was uh, the chief negotiator on climate change uh, uh, leading up to Copenhagen. And I can say very, uh, you know, exp explicitly that China was a, a good um, ally in many of the issues that we were uh, fighting for. So that was a period where uh, perhaps uh, in Chinese perceptions also, 
uh, you know, it was important that a, a certain, uh, you know, positive relationship should be maintained between India and uh, China. Uh, however, this situation began to undergo a change post-2007. We had the uh, financial and economic crisis of 2007-2008. Uh, the Western uh, world, including the uh, United States of America, was very badly affected uh, by this crisis. China, on the other hand, emerged relatively unscathed from that crisis. And perhaps in relative terms, both economic capabilities as well as military capabilities on its part, it had managed to, in a sense, shrink the asymmetry of power with the United States. Uh, and by contrast, uh, India's growth rate started slowing uh, down. Um, and, it, it, you know, India's uh, more outward-looking policies, its uh, uh, embrace of globalization, there seem to be now some doubts uh, uh, about that. Uh, so there was perhaps a sense in China that the old paradigm had changed. And this was reflected in the very frequent uh, uh, sort of reference <laughs> to China's economy being, you know, five times the size of uh, India's economy. Uh, our Indian friends should realize that, you know, the situation has undergone a change, basically saying that, uh, you know, you are no longer in the same league as us. Uh, and then they, this came... Uh, you know, this came with the assertion that, you know, uh, this is an age of uh, great power relationships, a new type of great power relationship that is uh, between China and the United States. So benchmarking China with the United States, not benchmarking China anymore with other emerging countries like uh, India, like Brazil, South Africa, uh, which was the case earlier. So uh, I think we have to recognize that at least in Chinese perception, uh, there is a big change in the geopolitical uh, landscape. And in that landscape, uh, India is very much a junior partner. Ambassador Saran, you have served in many countries in India's neighborhood, uh, which are also neighbors of China. And I was wondering from that perspective, how do you see Sino-Indian relations being perceived in our neighborhood? Uh, you know, is there a sense that the Chinese want to put India in place so that India's own neighbors then feel a bit more emboldened in dealing with India or getting closer to China? I mean, clearly the Chinese footprint in our neighborhood has also been expanding quite dramatically. You are right. I mean, the Chinese footprint uh, is expanding uh, in our neighborhood. And uh, the latest uh, example of that is, uh, you know, Nepal's, uh, uh, you know, decision to... Uh, you know, come out with a new map incorporating uh, a fairly significant chunk of Indian territory uh, into Nepal. Um, uh, certainly, Nepal feels that, you know, the uh, kind of tension between India and China and the power asymmetry between India and China also gives them space, uh, in a sense, to even cock a snoot at uh, India. Uh, so uh, our neighbors are very sensitive to the state of relations between um, India and China, and not just India and China, but the state of relations between India and other major powers. And uh, this is also the reason why, uh, you know, uh, I would go back again to 2005, 2006, 2007, <clears throat> because if you recall, this was also the period of very, uh, major transformation in Nepal, in which India played a uh, very important uh, role. 
uh, now uh, would that be possible uh, today uh, that is debatable uh, i would hope that it is still possible for india to leverage the very strong affinities it continues to have uh, with each of its uh, neighboring uh, countries um, india could still emerge as the engine of growth and also for post covid uh, recovery economic recovery for these uh, countries but that requires making certain very uh, important choices uh, the fact is that i have said before also that in your neighborhood if you leave open spaces somebody is going to walk in and i think <laughs> to some extent that is what has been uh, happening uh, i still believe that despite china having made certain important gains in its relations with some of our neighbors uh, the assets which we have the leverage that we have in terms of our relations with our neighbors we still have an edge over china but it requires very very uh, you know intensive uh, sort of diplomacy uh, and a great deal of nurturing of our relations with our neighbors uh, to ensure that that somehow has been somewhat missing so in the current context it is being said also that india too has some choices to make and that in some ways you know the problem has been that india has never clearly chosen in the past and that uh, the current crisis should be a wake up call uh, for new delhi to say that it has to make itself very clear that where it stands in the broader strategic uh, equation between the united states and china and so forth uh and and there is also a view uh you know uh, my colleague ashley tellis was on the same podcast a couple of weeks ago and he articulated this standpoint that you know it's in some ways india has to realize that internal balancing is not really an option uh for new delhi at least in the short run so you know clarifying its overall strategic orientation is going to be of paramount importance in the current context how do you see uh, these arguments and claims about how india should position itself more broadly yeah so one thing uh, should be very clear that uh, you know uh, in our confrontation with china or if there is an armed conflict with china uh, we are not going to get any of our partners uh, to come and fight our battles uh, for us uh, these uh, battles have to be fought by india itself we cannot depend upon others uh, having said that of course have uh, having strong security arrangements having strong uh, political relations with other major powers in particular the united states america but also you know countries like japan or australia southeast asia you know important countries like uh, indonesia and vietnam uh, and also with europe you know strong relationship with uh, europe a strong relationship continuing relationship with uh, russia you know having that kind of network of strong relationships gives india more room for maneuver than it would uh, otherwise have now this business of having to choose where to be uh, i am not sure that that is a, the right way of opposing that uh, question you know economics uh, we say you know we work on the margin <laughs> so diplomacy is also to some extent working on the margin it is not in either or situation it is more a situation where what more do you do incrementally here what less you do incrementally somewhere else uh, so as to have the right mix you know i don't think we should 
place ourselves in rigid positions because when you are placed in a rigid position and do not have much flexibility, then your room for maneuver then diminishes. And I would not like India to be in that kind of a situation. That is uh, something that we should uh, recognize. And even if we are looking at, say, the relationship with the United States of America, do not forget that in the United States also, there is a strong uh, sort of a strain of thinking that uh, why do not we recognize the reality of China's emergence? Why do not we recognize that China as a great power is likely to you know, expand its influence and it is quite natural. This is what United States of America has done also in the past. So is there not a uh, argument for coming to some kind of a understanding, some kind of a modus vivendi uh, with uh, China. Now, if that were to happen, then, you know, uh, we would be, in a sense, uh, left in the lurch. Uh, so we have to be conscious of the fact that it is in our interest to build our relations with the United States of America, because that is, I believe, that is in India's uh, interest. But uh, we should uh, still keep... Uh, some room of uh, maneuver for our, for ourselves because situations change, relationships uh, and equations change. Uh, uh, relations between China and Japan it keeps you know evolving. Uh, China and uh, Japan have very very strong and dense economic relationships. That is a factor that uh, J Japan has to uh, consider. So uh, while there is great sense in, for example, further crystallization of what we have called the Quad or the Indo-Pacific uh, strategy, I think certainly that is in India's uh, interest. But I would not like to go into a direction where India sort of becomes part and parcel of a kind of a rigid military uh, alliance. I do not think that this uh, in India's interest. Uh, I'd like to finish by coming back to the situation on the line of actual control. Despite this clash happening there, uh, the Chinese do not seem to be in uh, any mood to move towards a status quo and a, or a restoration of the situation as it existed before uh, they carried out their actions. Uh, meetings on the ground are continuing, but clearly there is no sign that the Chinese are likely to ease up at any point in time. So given this situation, how do you think uh, you know, India should be managing both the current crisis and looking forward to how to manage relations with China in the context where such situations are likely to recur in the future? And uh, against the background of the knowledge that some of the things that we took for granted in terms of boundary management protocols, etc., have broken down in this instance with very tragic consequences. So one um, important uh, point to remember is that we already have uh, several very good uh, agreements on the maintenance of peace and tranquility on the border. And uh, despite uh, occasional uh, you know, confrontations, uh, including the current one, uh, by and large, uh, we have been able to maintain uh, relative peace and tranquility on the border. So the success of those agreements in providing a fairly extended period of a peace on the border should not be underestimated. And I think we, our effort should be to try and uh, strengthen the implementation of those agreements and very importantly, to press for the clarification of the LSE, which is also uh, a very important uh, 
you know, provision in the, those agreements. So I think uh, uh, strengthening of those agreements, yes, but I think those agreements by themselves are quite good agreements. Uh, one, we have one uh, from uh, 2003, we have one in 2006, we have then in 2005, and then the latest one in 2013. So we have, I think, a, a number of very good agreements uh, for maintaining peace and tranquility. The one thing missing has been this clarification of the LSE, which should be something which we should now uh, press very, very hard for. Uh, that is one aspect. The uh, second aspect is that, um, yes, there is uh, a certain obduracy on the part of the Chinese side. But, you know, we have uh, seen this uh, in uh, earlier uh, instances as well, including uh, in 2017 in uh, Dokna. Uh, where, in fact, the uh, Chinese position publicly expressed was uh, far more confrontational and uh, I would say far more, far more negative than we see publicly at least uh, currently. Uh, so we, uh, there is no need for us to be in a great hurry uh, with regard to the, uh, you know, resolving this issue. Uh, if there is a certain stalemate, but we hang in there and we refuse to, in fact, concede, uh, that, uh, you know, whatever uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, pressures that China is putting on the LSE, this is something that we will somehow or the other acquire. Uh, I should, I would say that we should not give that uh, impression. Uh, there is no need for us to uh, prematurely sort of take a decision that one way or the other, this has to be uh, resolved. Uh, we have faced these kind of confrontations in the past and we have hung in there. Uh, sometimes for a fairly long period of time. Uh, you would recall, uh, for example, in the case of the Sumdorongchu incident, uh, you know, the, the uh, standoff continued for, uh, I think, a few years before uh, we were able to resolve it. So um, taking, taking uh, a leaf out of that book, uh, I think, uh, okay, if we have to be prepared for the long haul and we have to be prepared for an extended period of standoff, uh, so be it. Ambassador Saran, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much, Srinath. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. page.